There's a big difference in the research between people who think about power in terms of opportunity and think about, you know, again, how they can enrich themselves, how can they can maintain power, the opportunities that come with having power, uh, even if that's, you know, shaping the direction of your company, right, which is a great positive thing, but it's still, that's an opportunity. Welcome to a special episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast featuring some of the world's foremost experts on the psychology of performance. Listen closely and get ready for your mind to expand. And then there are people who think more about the responsibility that comes with power that whatever decisions I make in terms of shaping the direction of my company, all these other people's outcomes are gonna be impacted by that. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at our conversations with some of the most renowned experts in the psychology of leadership and performance, from the science of setting and achieving transformational goals to the impact of our surroundings on our ability to execute, this episode will change the way you lead yourself. There's a huge influence that social forces play on our ability to achieve our goals. The people who we surround ourselves with show us what's possible. They give us hints as to what we can do to achieve similar objectives in life. And so to the extent that you can actually craft a community of like-minded individuals that you can build groups um, that you socialize with intentionally who have similar goals and shared aspirations, is really, really valuable. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we're revisiting our conversation with Dr. Katie Milkman, award-winning Wharton professor, behavioral scientist, and the co-director of the Behavior Change for Good initiative. While many of us aspire to improve, be it personally or professionally, our intentions are only loosely predictive of our behaviors. So what truly drives behavioral change? We want to get better. That's our natural inclination is towards improvement, which is great. You can see why that's an adaptive feature of human nature and why we would be you know, it would be common to want to improve. But you're right that that wanting is not the same as doing. There's so many more steps. One of the things I have studied in my research is how to actually launch change. What are the ideal moments when change is most likely to happen, when we're most motivated to go beyond wanting to acting? And um, what my col- collaborators and I have found is that there are actually um, moments in our lives that feel like new beginnings, So the most familiar one might be New Year's, but there are others as well from the start of a new week to the celebration of a birthday to moving into a new role at work or uh, in your family that they give you this sense that you've closed one chapter in your life and you're opening another. Even if it's as small as a week, there's this sense of a fresh start and a clean slate that comes with it and an identity shift because you can say, okay, that was the old me last week or last year before my birthday that failed to achieve goals X, Y, and Z. But you get the sense that you have a clean slate and a fresh start and the new you can do it. And so what we found in our research is that at those moments that feel like new beginnings, people are more likely to start pursuing goals. They're more likely to do things like visit the gym, search for the term diet on Google. They're more likely to set goals on popular goal-setting website around everything from their finances to their education to their health. And so if we're trying to think about how do we actually move beyond just wanting to change to actually taking action on it, looking for these moments that are essentially 
propellants. They they supercharge our motivation and make it easier for us to, you know, jump and actually take action can be really valuable. And when we're trying to coach someone else or encourage someone else, if we're if you're in the role of a manager, a teacher, um, or literally a sports coach, looking for a fresh start moment in the life of the the people you're encouraging to make change can be really valuable. We've found that when we for instance, highlight dates on a calendar that correspond to fresh starts, like the, the first day of spring or a birthday, and then invite people to make change on those dates, people are more motivated and find that more attractive than if we just invite change on an ordinary moment. And, and what do you find to be the difference? So for example, on New Year's Day, tons of people set New Year's resolutions and they're, the gym is never more crowded, right? Than it is at the start of January. Yes. But then it, it it seems like however many people set those resolutions in February, most of them seem <laughs> to fall off. And I'm just curious, what's the difference between somebody who maintains that habit or it, it builds on that habit versus the one who abandons it? Yeah, it's such a great question. I have to say, by the way, that because I'd done this research on the fresh start effect, which is what we call this phenomenon, a lot of people, when they heard I was writing a book about behavior change, assumed I was going to write a book about fresh starts and their incredible motivational power to get us going towards change. And my immediate response was, that would be a really useless book because fresh starts only get you started and they don't get you to the finish line. So I wrote a chapter in this book about behavior change that focuses on fresh starts. But the rest of the book is about strategies that you can use now that you've got that motivation to begin to actually get further than February if it's a New Year's resolution. That is the challenge with so many goals is that we need more than just the motivation to begin. We actually need tools and tactics to help us overcome the many barriers to change that can stand in the way of success. So there's a lot of different strategies that work. And, and a key lesson I've learned in my research is that it really depends what barrier you're facing to change, what internal barrier, I should say. I focus in my research on studying the internal barriers. There are, of course, many external barriers that can get in our way of change from, you know, whether or not you have the financial resources you need, um, the, the structure in your environment that you need. Those are all worth attention to. But there's also internal barriers that can be obstacles to change from hating the, the process and finding it deeply unenjoyable to old habits, to forgetfulness, uh, to lack of confidence. And depending on what that barrier is, there's a different set of tools that research suggests can be helpful. And if you apply the wrong tools, you don't get nearly as far. So I'm sure we're going to dig into a bunch of those. Uh, let me just sort of high level say for now that um, the tactics depend on what what is holding you back? And so a really important part of the process in planning how are you going to get from your New Year's resolution to lasting change is starting to diagnose, okay, why is it that I am not exercising regularly or I'm not hitting my deadlines at work? I'm not eating the way I want to be eating or um, practicing meditation at the rate I want to be practicing it. Whatever your goal is, it's really important to interrogate those obstacles that are holding you back first. I don't know if you've heard this expression, but we're all committed to our existing set of habits. So there's, there's sometimes there's good habits and bad habits, right? So for some people, I'll just give an example. At five o'clock, they're lined up at the gym. Um, and for others, at five o'clock, they're lined up at the liquor store, right? Both both habits that take place at five o'clock. And you know, when you mentioned that like our existing habits it, at times lead us to live on autopilot. So when we are changing behavior, how much of it is like replacing another habit versus just creating a new one? Yeah, it's a great question. And it certainly depends a lot on your circumstances and probably your age. And, um, you know, I know we both have kids and that's a whole other thing that that shapes and constrains habits and routines. So, you know, it's a that's a big old it depends. Actually, the best tools and tactics for building new positive habits are, I think, the same in both cases, whether we're replacing old ones or building new ones. It is key in sort of habit startup mode to try to first, you know, create a plan. When is it that you want to execute the behavior? Not just what is it that you hope to achieve or what's your long-run goal, but can you break it down and think about what exactly do you need to do, say, on a daily basis? Um, when will you do it? How will you do it? You know, what will what will your social supports look like? And then really is true that the more you practice something, the more it becomes habitual. And we think about practice and deliberate practice as something you do to achieve mastery, which is absolutely true, right? You know, if you want to be a great basketball player, you have to shoot, you know, 
thousands and thousands of basketballs. And if you want to become a great pianist, you have to practice over and over again and get that feedback. Um, it turns out that building habits, though, is also about repetition. And so if there's something you want to do that's good for you in the long run, trying to think of it as something you want to practice, just like you'd practice the piano, um, you know, doing it in, in an ideally a somewhat structured and consistent way, though also building flexibility so that you have sort of a backup plan if you can't do it in exactly the same way at the same time every day. Do you have, you know, what's the second best and practice that as well uh, and try to reward yourself for that practice because rewards are what what makes habits sticky once you repeat the behavior and you see that reward you see the good outcome and maybe by the way a lot of the things that have long-term rewards we need to bring those rewards forward by you know making it fun or telling other people about our successes so they can celebrate with us tracking them in some way those things are going to help us build lasting positive habits. So repetition, reward, some degree of consistency, but also enough flexibility so that when life throws you a curveball, you will still be able to enact that habit. Not always 7 a.m. or always 5 p.m. is if you if you get too rigid, actually my research has shown you don't build the most lasting habits. So some degree of flexibility is important to build in as you're in startup mode. Our behavior can be greatly influenced by those around us. In fact, Katie believes that the closer we are to someone with a situation that resembles our own, the more likely we are to be influenced by them. I asked Katie to speak to the impact communities and other external influences can make on behavioral change. It might be the most important factor. And one of the things that's tough is it's one of the more difficult factors to change, right? Because we don't choose our community always. Often it chooses us. There's a huge influence that social forces play on our ability to achieve our goals. The people who we surround ourselves with show us what's possible. They give us hints as to what we can do to achieve similar objectives in life. And so to the extent that you can actually craft a community of like-minded individuals that you can build groups um, that you socialize with intentionally who have similar goals and shared aspirations is really, really valuable. Uh, it's a reason, frankly, that so many of the organizations built around behavior change, you know, from religious organizations to organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous or um, WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, they recognize this and, and groups are such a huge part of the techniques they use to help us get to our end objectives. But you can do this deliberately in your own life and recognize if you can form a group of people with similar goals, whether it's people who want to run a marathon or people who have similar business objectives, spending time with those people, learning their tactics. I often talk about the power of forming an advice club can be really useful because you see what works for other people who are similar in various ways in terms of their objectives and ideally their, their background and skills. And you can copy and paste what's working for them and start learning it and using it yourself. But another feature of sort of an advice club where you you have a group of like-minded people, you seek advice, you see what's working for them, ask what I should do in this situation, is actually when you get asked for input, um, when someone comes to you and says, you know, what would you do in this situation? That turns out to be incredibly valuable for your own outcomes. So being put in the role of advice giver boosts your confidence that you actually know more than maybe you realized. It makes you feel like, I can do this if someone's coming to me and looking to me for wisdom. It causes you to dredge up insights that you might not otherwise, because now to help someone else, you have to figure this out. And then once you've advised someone else to take a set of actions, you're more likely to follow through on them yourself because you don't want to be hypocritical. And so social groups that have similar goals give you the opportunity to be in the role of advice giver and role model, which, which benefits you just as watching others succeed benefits you. So there's all these powerful ways that groups can shape our outcomes for the better. They can also, of course, shape our outcomes for the worse, which is why curating them carefully can be a huge asset. Yeah, and we've used the term before, like mental nutrition. You know, who are you getting your information from? Uh, because you can have different groups. One group could be talking about all the obstacles and, you know, it just has a very pessimistic outlook. Whereas another group is talking about opportunities and, and the people you surround yourself with. It, it could drastically differ in terms of how you approach situations. So there's the, the mental nutrition component. There's the accountability component. At the very end of the book, I you talk about changing for good. And, and I'd love if you could just briefly elaborate on this because you talk about like transformative behavior change being more like treating a chronic disease than, than curing a rash. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not the, um, you know, most attractive of uh, comparisons, but 
One of the maybe most important insights that I have ever gotten from a conversation came from talking to one of my colleagues at Penn's Medical School, actually, whose research I've even cited in this very conversation, Kevin Volp, who's a brilliant behavioral scientist, an MD, who does a lot of interesting work on on behavior change around health outcomes. And I was talking to him about a study that had had mixed success, and I was really frustrated by this study. So it was a study I had done with Angela Duckworth and actually 24-Hour Fitness Gyms, where we had developed 54 different behavior change programs in partnership with dozens of scientists and piloted them on, on tens of thousands of people to try to create lasting change. And the programs all lasted for a month. And the objective was to create change that would last permanently, really, you know, not just for a month, but for years and years in, in folks' exercise patterns. And we'd had success and failure. Success looked like during that month when the program was in place and people were, you know, hearing from us regularly, getting encouragement and so on, really good things happened. We saw a lot of positive change in behavior. But then after that month ended and we looked out to the future, we saw that a huge amount of the change we'd created decayed. So I was talking to Kevin and saying, you know, what, uh, lamenting, why didn't the change last? It's so frustrating. We did all the right things for this month. We saw all these benefits and then it sort of fell away. And he had this great comment. He said, you know, Katie, when we treat someone for a chronic disease, someone comes in, we diagnose them, say, with diabetes, we don't put them on insulin for a month and expect them to be cured. We treat them for a lifetime because we recognize that the things that are preventing them from, you know, that are making them diabetic, they're not going anywhere. So why do we think behavior change is any different? Why do we treat it as a temporary state that needs to be cured rather than a chronic state? Because all these barriers to change that, you know, we're present bias, that we sometimes lack confidence in our ability, that we can be forgetful, that bad habits are easier to fall back on than good because we take the path of least resistance. Those things aren't temporary. And so why would we give them a temporary treatment? And I thought it was such an important and valuable insight. It was like one of those light bulb moments in my life. And it's true when you look at the data, so many of the tools that we know can help change behavior, they work in a durable way if they're applied durably. But once you take them away, they stop working, right? So if, if you've found a way to get to the gym regularly by bundling it with your Netflix binge watching of your favorite shows, and suddenly you shut down your Netflix subscription, the gym is going to go back to not being fun. And why are you going to want to keep going? So there's no reason to shut down the tools. I think there's sort of like a glass half empty or a glass half full way of looking at it. And I try to be, I tend to be more of an optimist and say, look, the tools that help us create temporary change, we can keep using them to create lasting change. But it is really important to recognize there's not quick fixes out there that if you sort of try something for a month and say, okay, I'm done. I did it for a month. Now it'll just last. For the most part, you're going to be disappointed. You know, there are some things we can put on autopilot through practice and repetition, but the reinforcement part is really important to continuing most behavior change. Understanding the science of behavioral change is a powerful tool for leaders and their teams alike. But to effectively influence others, we need to unlock a different type of capability. Dr. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist, author, and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Through her research, Vanessa has found that we tend to underestimate our power of persuasion. She reveals her findings in her best-selling book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. There are so many books out there on how to gain influence. And, you know, there's all these sort of instructions and tips and tricks and, you know, things you can do better. And it's funny because that message never sort of jived with what I saw as a social psychologist. As a social psychologist who studied influence for over 15 years, you know, I am constantly seeing how much influence people have without even trying, you know, just by being around another person, just by making sort of a throwaway comment, and just by people sort of noticing them and mimicking them. And so it's always been interesting to me that there's such a sort of appetite for these books and seminars on gaining influence when in fact it seemed to me like, you know, we all have it. So why aren't we seeing it? And so the book is really kind of laying out all these psychological biases that prevent us from seeing the influence that we already have and thinking that we need all these tricks and tips. 
in, and in the first chapter of the book, I know you talk about unseen influence, basically stating that we're not as invisible as we think. If you could elaborate on that, and then uh, as you describe, like the invisibility cloak illusion. Sure. So this is a finding by my colleague, Erica Boothby, who's this amazing researcher at Wharton. And she has coined this phrase, invisibility cloak illusion, which basically refers to the idea that as we walk through the world, kind of just going about our ordinary day, you know, you can imagine yourself walking through the park with headphones on or, you know, sitting on the subway, reading a paper. We think that no one's really paying that much attention to us. Right. So we think that we're essentially walking around in an invisibility cloak. And what she's shown is that, in fact, more people are noticing you and noticing the things you're doing, the things you're wearing, your behaviors, than we tend to think. So when she's asked people, you know, how many people were looking at you in this particular scene or in this particular moment, people underestimate the number of eyes that were on them. And that's partly because when we catch someone's eye, we have this thing called gaze aversion where we quickly look away. And our assumption is that, oh, they caught me looking at them. But she shows that actually, you know, it's just as likely that you caught them looking at you, but we tend to assume it was the other way around. And I love how throughout this book, it's it's almost like this, whatever you believe, consider the opposite, because then you juxtapose this with the spotlight effect and then the reverse spotlight effect, if you could kind of di differentiate between the two. That's right. So a lot of people, once they first hear about the invisibility cloak illusion, get very uh, paranoid and self-conscious because they think about all the times that they really were hoping nobody noticed something that they did. And they don't want to hear that. Oh, wait a minute. Lots of people saw that. And in fact, that is called the spotlight effect. And that is another phenomenon that was done by a colleague of mine here at Cornell, Tom Gilovich. And that's actually a, a happier sort of story than we may initially think. So the spotlight effect basically says that we think more people are watching us than actually are when it's about something that we are acutely self-conscious about. So for example, if you're having a really bad hair day, if you feel really self-conscious about some style you're trying on, if you stumble and say the wrong word, if you, you know, just do something embarrassing as you're walking around. Fewer people are noticing that and seeing that and remembering that than we tend to think. So he looked at this in the context of giving people these embarrassing t-shirts to wear. And he gave them these Barry Manilow concert t-shirts, which now I'm like, that would be a really cool hip thing to wear. <laughs> but he pre-tested it back then and found that most people were pretty embarrassed to be wearing this Barry Manilow t-shirt. And he led them into a room with a group of people and then took them out of the room and said, how many people in that room do you think noticed what was on your t-shirt? And then he asked the actual people in the room, how many of you noticed what was on that participant's t-shirt? And on average, people tended to overestimate the number of people who were paying attention to that embarrassing thing on their t-shirt. And so you could say like, how do we reconcile that with what you just told me about the invisibility cloak illusion? And the idea is that when we're kind of going about our ordinary life and not acutely self-conscious about something, then we feel more visible than we actually are. But when we're super self-conscious or embarrassed about something, then we think all eyes are on us and that's not necessarily true. And so Erica Boothby actually teased these two things out by giving people either a new t-shirt, an embarrassing t-shirt like Tom Gillich did, or had them wear their just ordinary t-shirt that they came into a study wearing. And she found that if you were just wearing your ordinary clothes, you thought no one really noticed what you were wearing. If you were given this embarrassing outfit to wear, you thought everyone noticed, right? And they were both errors. So it winds up being this kind of happy medium where you have more impact because people notice the things you do more, but it's not the things that you're worried about people noticing. So the, there's another situation where you describe, like, I'm, I'm curious, like, how much people actually remember what was said versus how they felt? Because I've, I've heard that, like, less than, you know, 5% sometimes of people remember from whether it's presentations or even from interactions, but 100% of the feeling, right? That's right. And so, you know, there's this kind of general idea that if we say something wrong, someone's going to jump down our throat and remember it forever and post it on social media and, you know, catch us saying this exact phrase that we feel really uncomfortable with. When in fact, you know, it's not that words don't matter. Of course, words matter. But 
people don't remember all the words we say the way that we think that they do. In fact, they walk away from conversations and from interactions with other people just with the gist. I mean, if you think about it, if I were to ask you, you know, oh yeah, what did you guys talk about? You would come up with some general themes. Most people aren't going to quote exact quotes. And most people are going to really struggle to actually piece that conversation together. But we think that other people's memory is kind of more rote, like they're going to remember every little thing and hold me to everything I say. When in fact, it's much more about conveying sort of general warmth, general opinions, general ideas. When we find ourselves trying to motivate someone or change their mind, we often use facts or logic in attempt to persuade them. But Vanessa argues that we should take a different approach. If you think about the things that actually make you sort of change your mind, it's rarely someone telling you, well, you know, it's this percent more effective to do this and da da da. Most people, what they do is they look around at what other people are doing and then they follow suit. And so this is something actually Bob Cialdini, who's sort of an influence godfather, has talked about. And he calls it the difference between prescriptive norms, these things that you hear about that you should do right? And descriptive norms, the things that people are actually doing. So you can see a sign that says recycle or don't litter. And then if you look around and there's litter everywhere and, you know, no one's using the recycling the right way, you just follow what everybody else is doing. The funny thing is when we try to persuade people, we think it's the facts. We think it's, you know, these kinds of prescriptive norms that are really going to shape their behavior. And we forget that those descriptive norms are so powerful. And those in power, you argue, they don't oftentimes like bow down to the same kind of like social pressures and, and, and concerns that you, you kind of discuss throughout the book. Um, why is that? That's right. So there's some interesting psychological effects of having power that have been documented. And a couple of them are, for one, people in positions of power tend to be less likely to take other people's perspectives. And when you think about that, it's really just a matter of uh, practical concern, right? If I control the resources, as I said, that's how they define power, right? I don't need to figure out so much what motivates other people because I'm the one who has the resources. If you're in a low power position, you really want to understand like what motivates that higher power person so that you can find a way to get access to those resources. But if I'm in a high position of power and I make a comment and it, you know, hurts someone's feelings doesn't matter as much if I am in a lower power position and I hurt a higher power position's feelings. And so we're less likely to sort of take people's perspective. And that makes us less worried about saying things, blurting things out, you know, how our words might impact other people. And another aspect of that is that we tend to experience fewer situational constraints. And so there's a classic study where people who are primed to feel power, they do that by just having you remember a time that you had, you were in a position of power. They were sitting in a chair and there was a fan blowing on them and it was really annoying. And it was ambiguous whether you were allowed to move that fan. And people in positions of power would just go ahead and move it, right? People who had recalled this time that they had power. People who recalled the time they didn't have power would just sit there and kind of deal with the fan because it was ambiguous. They weren't sure if they could do that. And so people in positions of power kind of feel like they don't have to worry so much about what other people think. They don't have these situational constraints. And in the end, what happens is they extend that to their impressions of other people. And if someone else doesn't move that fan, they're like, why did you just sit there, right? Why didn't you move that fan? And forget that not everyone is lacking in those constraints. Yes, I, I want to elaborate on this because, you, you know, the leaders that those that have power, I think sometimes this false belief that while we may be free to do what we want to do, that others are also similarly free. And that I think can, can cause a lot of blame and, and so on. Like, how would you suggest leaders navigate that? That's right. And it's interesting because, as I said, you know, you kind of overextend that feeling that I don't have these constraints to other people not having those constraints. And so there's some interesting research by Pam Smith and her colleagues looking at how if I'm in a position of power and I'm assessing whether someone who was late to a meeting because they got stuck in traffic is responsible for being late to that meeting, people in positions of power are more likely to say, yeah, that's your fault and your responsibility. The situation that you, you had no control over, right? A traffic jam. But if I'm in a position of power, I just assume like you can handle a situation. You don't have these situational constraints. I'm going to blame you for being late for something you couldn't have actually, you know, prevented. And people in positions of low power are more likely to say, okay, that was a situational constraint. They couldn't have done anything about that. 
And so one thing is just to be aware of that, right? To sort of know that that is a bias that we tend to have when we're in positions of power, that we over sort of attribute agency to people who might not always have agency. And then also to sort of try more actively to take the perspectives, or we can talk later about the difference between taking perspectives or getting the perspective of other people, but really to try to get insight into other people's constraints, other people's concerns, other people's reactions to things we say in situations that they're in, be, and sort of recognize that when we're trying actively to figure that stuff out, we're often wrong because we're basing it on our privileged position of being in power, right? And so we often make these mistakes trying to understand what someone else is experiencing in that situation. So I read something interesting, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. And someone was saying essentially that those that are in power, for them, when they are vulnerable or they exude vulnerability, that actually is seen as a leadership strength and it builds connections and it creates more authenticity. But someone who is not in a position of power, when they are vulnerable, it comes across as weakness. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that from an influence perspective? Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Again, if you're in a position of power, you know, people are looking to you, you control their resources, their outcomes, and they want to know that you're going to do it in a way where you're actually taking their outcomes, you know, into consideration. And one big worry about power is that people are so focused on enriching themselves and maintaining their own power that they're not actually thinking about the people who, you know, they're in charge of. And so there's a big difference in the research between people who think about power in terms of opportunity and think about, you know, again, how they can enrich themselves, how can they can maintain power, the opportunities that come with having power, uh, even if that's, you know, shaping the direction of your company, right, which is a great positive thing, but it's still that's an opportunity. And then there are people who think more about the responsibility that comes with power, that whatever decisions I make in terms of shaping the direction of my company, all these other people's outcomes are going to be impacted by that. And I think, as you're saying, you know, when you're in a position of power and you show this kind of vulnerability, it kind of suggests that I am willing to kind of think about you and care. And it suggests that there, you're, there's going to be this sort of pro-social understanding and responsibility that you're taking for other people's outcomes and this awareness that your power has this element of responsibility as well. Connecting authentically with those we seek to influence is key. And identity is central to those relationships. In fact, understanding identity is a key step to mastering the psychology of performance. Dr. Jay Van Bavel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. He's also the co-author of The Power of Us, harnessing our shared identities to improve performance, increase cooperation, and promote social harmony. While we may believe that our identities are clear and fixed, Jay's research proves that they're fluid and can shift even in the day-to-day. I remember this scene from Seinfeld. I think it was George when he talked about panic because his worlds were colliding. Um, and so the reason for that is we're used to having these different identities um, in our different spheres of our life. When we go to work, we have one identity and people treat us one way. We go home, it's different. When we go to see our parents, we slip back into another identity. Like for me, it's also a little bit slipping back into like a kid and my mom starts taking care of me. It's weird, right? Like I'm a grown man, but we resume our old identities. So her as a mom, which she hasn't really, you know, it doesn't have in her day-to-day life anymore and me as her son. And so those can be in conflict. And so part of what makes us really effective as humans is the original working title for the book that I wanted to use was Social Chameleons. Because I think of humans, and that's one of our powers, is that we can operate and shift identities in different groups. And we often think, well, that's just you're being a hypocrite. But no, it's actually key to being successful is being adaptive and flexible enough to have different identities uh, as we go around the world so that we can fit in in different places. And people who are really good at that are often you know, really successful in lots of domains of life. They can be a great parent and a great, you know, CEO or manager at work. And those might be completely different skill sets and personalities that they adopt to be successful in those places. I'm curious, like, where does the line get drawn between when this is okay and a good thing? So, for example, the way we are with our, our young daughters versus how we are in a leadership meeting versus people who, let's say, could approach this from a manipulative standpoint in, in the sense that they are, let's say, public-facing one way and then, um, you know, let's say, very <laughs> corrupt in private. Yeah, so I think that there's a difference between actually embracing an identity. So let's say being, you know, I have a daughter too, so being a father to her 
versus the identity I have at work as a professor or, or running a research lab or as an author, I'm, you know, go and give a talk somewhere about my book versus like being two-faced <laughs> where you actively are deceiving people. So you have a public facing identity and then privately you're doing something very different. To me, that's more problematic uh, than actually genuinely and authentically being understanding these identities. You're not really hiding anything from anybody. It's just that you are, you know, it's like dressing up for work. You dress differently for work than when you're at home. Uh, although in the pandemic, that's kind of like scrambled that whole thing, right? It's the first time we've been able to wear like pajamas to work or no pants on a work call. But for the most part, we have these different like suits or skins that we slip into, but they come with more than just the clothes. It comes with a way of talking, a way of thinking, a way of acting. And what our book argues and even a way of seeing the world. And so the example we use for that is this famous study at Princeton, where Princeton was playing Dartmouth uh, football team. Princeton at the time was the best in the country. They had the Heisman winning quarterback and uh, Dartmouth came in. They weren't being that successful and the game got rough. And the Dartmouth team ended up injuring this All-American quarterback that Princeton had. Princeton retaliated, and the game got out of hand. And then the next day, the Princeton newspaper wrote up a very different description of the game than the Dartmouth newspaper. And these two professors at this different university saw this and said, what the heck's going on here? How can people see this exact same game and come to such different conclusions? And they even brought in students and showed them, like, clips of the game. This was, like, in the 50s, so it was, like, reels of, of tape, I guess. And even when they were watching the game right in front of them, they still came to different conclusions about which team had more fouls. And the reason for this is when you have your identity on, in this case with Dartmouth or Princeton, it changes how you're filtering the information. So even looking at a video, you're paying attention to different things than some people with a different identity would. And this is one reason why every all fans hate the umps or the refs, right? And it's because the refs don't have an identity on and we're all biased because we're fans of these teams. And so we're filtering it and seeing things in a different way than the refs. Uh, admittedly, the refs are wrong sometimes, but for the most part, it's because the fans are biased. And, and what about the concept of like naive realism? It, it, it meaning that like, let's say people often assume, as you described, that they see reality objectively for what it is. And then when something comes in that's in conflict with, let's say, the reality that they see, they, they start to dismiss that. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite concepts in psychology. It's called naive realism. And it essentially just means that we all think we see reality for what it is, but we're naive in thinking that because other people can see, the, you know, features of reality we're missing or see our blind spots or biases. But of course, how could you see it any other way, right? Because if you knew reality was different from what you were seeing, you just update your beliefs. And so people um, can get stuck in this way of, of thinking about the world that is, um, it creates actually a lot of conflict across identity groups. So this has been used to help people try to, understand and unravel like intractable group conflicts. Um, you see this a lot in American politics. It was used actually in trying to address like conflicts in the Middle East and Northern Ireland. Um, so it's often a, a thing that happens when two groups disagree so much that they start to tune into different news sources. They start to like share and follow different people on social media. They start to change their friend groups or move to neighborhoods of people like them. And as you do that, you slowly get more and more in this bubble Academics, you know, are accused of this all the time, that we're in our ivory tower, you know, and we're removed from the concerns of, of real people. And, and I think a lot of academics are. And, and so those are the types of things that wall you off from other people and then you get in a disagreement with them. And it's hard to tell if you're seeing it the right way or you've just been so, so in such a bubble that you're not experiencing the same things as them and, and failing to understand it. So that's something always to be aware of. If you disagree with somebody, I always like to do a naive realism check with myself first to make sure that like I'm not the one that's wrong. Just kind of like fact check myself first before I, I go down the, you know, to the trouble of trying to like correct somebody else because a lot of times it's just that you're not seeing it the right way or you've missed something. So on that note of like a naive realism check, because I'd, I'd love to ask you, like, what are some ways that people can really check themselves? Because inherently, it seems like the issue is that because somebody does see reality the way they see it objectively, um, they almost want to like dismiss other information that could be factual. And then whenever, as you mentioned, whenever identity is at stake, you know, factual information becomes even more diluted. So it's like, how, how do you know what is true? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Um, one is be aware that, for example, if you're going to like buy into something or let's say share it on social media, that's something we also study in my lab, um, that we're more likely to share things that align with our identity and our values. And so certain people are sharing something that's, it's the reason they share is in part because it pushes their buttons 
or it signals their identity to other people really effectively, or they're doing it to fit in with whatever they think the norms of what other people believe are. And so it's easy for us to share that. It's where we tend to be naturally more skeptical of things that don't align with our identity and our values. And so it takes more effort to apply that skepticism to things that do align with our identity and values and kind of double check them. So that's something you should always be, it's kind of like a confirmation bias check on yourself. If it like lines up a little too closely with what you already believe, um, be extra skeptical of it, at least at first pass. So that would be one thing I, I think to do. Um, the other thing, and this is something we're studying now uh, in, in my lab with, with collaborators, is this notion of intellectual humility. People differ on this. Some people are very low on intellectual humility. They think they're always right. And they're highly just skeptical of everybody else. And they just trust facts from other people. And then there's people who are like intrinsically skeptical of their own perspective and open-minded to learning more. And it turns out that that's a really useful reality check device. So if this study now with, you know, in 68 countries with this, 70,000 people around the world. And we found that's one of the one of the best predictors we found for people who didn't buy into conspiracy theories about COVID was people who scored high in intellectual humility. They were good at kind of weeding out the accurate information that the scientists were giving from the inaccurate conspiracy theories that were spreading. And I think it's because they're constantly, whenever they get information, they're being skeptical of what they believe and going to higher quality sources. So I would also say the last thing I would suggest is we have a chapter on dissent. And what you want to do is bake dissent into your norms of whatever group you run. Um, so I, I once gave this talk with uh, the CFO of eBay, Maynard Webb, and he told me in the early days of eBay, what they would do is at their C-suite meetings, everybody had to take a turn wearing a black helmet. And that meant that they were the devil's advocate for the meeting. And no matter how much they agreed with the ideas, they had to poke holes in them. And the research shows that as long as one person dissents, even if they're wrong, it frees up the discussion for other people to think about new things or, or poke holes in bad ideas. And it uh, tends to lead groups to better decisions. So you can like bake this into your practices and procedures and norms of whatever group you're part of uh, to help make sure that your blind spots get caught. Throughout history, we admire what we call moral rebels. Those who lived up to their values in the face of significant obstacles and stood against popular yet harmful beliefs. However, in today's environment filled by information overload, how can we know if we're standing on the right side of history? Yeah, so, so the example of a moral rebel we talk about is Martin Luther King. So I think Martin Luther King has about a 95% national approval rating now, you know, long past his, his death, his assassination. But even years after his I Have a Dream speech, his approval rating was in the low 30%. And so we look back on him and think he was morally righteous, and there's like almost universal consensus of that. Um, but at the time, people didn't treat him that way, certainly not enough people. And so, and he paid with his life for it and faced enormous distress and he was imprisoned and so forth. Um, so it's hard to tell without time and perspective. What, what I see where I have a problem with conspiracy theories is when they've been flatly falsified and people are clinging to them, kind of like the cult followers. Um, some conspiracies turn out to be true. And so I don't intrinsically have a problem with people being skeptical of leadership or institutions or uh, asking questions. I have a problem with people who are, you know, full of BS, um, people who no matter what, how much they've been fact checked or how unlikely it is to be true, they keep clinging to it. Um, and, and it turns out I think that's most of conspiracy theories, but certainly some conspiracies turned out to be true. So I, I like to think of it from an evidence-based perspective, is that is there overwhelming evidence they're wrong? Well, then that's not a very good look for them. But is it up in the air and we don't know and they're just being like wisely skeptical about it? That's like good. And in fact, again, I'll go back to like the work on dissent we have. It's like you need dissenters. And in fact, the research on dissent, my co-author Dominic Packer was the pioneer of all this. Um, most people think when someone's dissenting that they actually don't care about the group. But what he's found is most of the time it's the people who care about the group the most that are the people who are willing to suck it up and dissent because dissenters are treated very badly throughout history. They're treated very badly in groups. Even the names we have for them, like devil's advocate, is a pretty nasty name for somebody who, in your group, right? A heretic is worse and look through history at how heretics have been treated. And so you need to create a culture where people are comfortable voicing concerns or you're going to get these things where they, when they actually think something's going wrong, they won't ask the right question and you'll make a bad decision. There's lots of examples of groupthink throughout history um, going very badly for, for leaders and organizations. But you need to have it in a healthy way. So if they dissent, what evidence do they have? You know, back it up with, an, with a reasoned argument or some evidence rather than just like spewing cynicism or negativity or conspiracy theories. 
And just for the people listening, I mean, we're, we're barely scratching the surface of, of this phenomenal book. So I, I certainly encourage everyone listening to read it if this is a topic you're interested in. Jay, I'm curious if, if someone's listening to this and they could only take away one thing from this conversation, what, what do you think it should be? Yeah, I think the big thing is we our intuitions about how people are motivated and how groups operate are often wrong. And I'll just throw out one concrete example here that I already talked about how Americans are, are individualistic. We're more individual individualistic than almost any other country. Um, well, what the research shows is that the more you identify as an American, the more individualistic you become. Or if you're an immigrant, you move to America, the more individualistic you become. And what that means is that individualism is a form of identity and conformity to norms of that identity. It's it's not the opposite. <laughs> that people think individualism is pushing against conformity and pushing against group identity. In fact, the research suggests it's the opposite. Um, another counterintuitive example I'll give is that people think when you join groups, you automatically uh, discriminate against others. You know, they think the term is thrown around a lot as tribalism. It's kind of automatically this very primitive way of treating people who are different. Well, that's not always true. It depends on the norms of your group. So people who identify with groups that are very inclusive, the more they identify, the more inclusive they become. So an example of that is like Doctors Without Borders. The more committed you become and immersed in the organization of Doctors Without Borders, the more radical you become in your willingness to make enormous sacrifices to yourself to help people who are very, very different than you in very faraway countries, or Red Cross is another one. And so when you understand how identity works, but also norms and leadership, it allows you to understand these things and, and guide them in a, in a healthier way. And um, if not, you, you draw a lot of false conclusions about how these things work, unfortunately. It's critical to understand where the line is between our identity and our true self in order to avoid drawing false conclusions and moving further away from our goals. But that's not all that goes into accomplishing what we set out to do. Dr. Ayelet Fishbach is a professor of behavioral science and marketing at the University of Chicago and an expert on motivation and decision-making. She's also the best-selling author of Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation, and shared with us the most critical factors to consider when setting and achieving goals. Successful behavioral change is uh, not just goal setting. Okay? It's goal setting. It's uh, monitoring the progress toward the goal. It's sustaining your motivation once you have set the goal. It's uh, you know, getting social support. It's uh, a multi-phase process. But the key is to understand that you change your behavior by changing the situation in which it occurs. Okay? And you change others by changing their situation. And, and you change yourself by changing your situation. And, you know, a trivial example is uh, setting an alarm clock. You want to wake up in the morning, you, you set an alarm clock, and when the alarm goes off, uh, instead of a quiet uh, room that uh, allows you to sleep, you have a noisy room where it's impossible to be sleeping. Everybody knows that that's intuitive. What sometimes we miss is that this is true for every level of changing our behavior. We change the situation or we change the framing of the situation. Okay, We might uh, move certain foods from the house. Uh, we might set a target. And when we set a target, then anything below that target feels like a loss, which we really care deeply to avoid, in which case we, we change the framing of the situation. That's uh, the key principle and everything follows from that. I know you argue that you have to set goals that feel more like aspirations than like chores and that powerful goals feel worth the price tag. What do you mean by that? Goals are not chores. Goals should be exciting. They should uh, identify where you want to be, not uh, how hard you will have to work to get there. Okay, So uh, a goal to uh, have a job is better than a goal to apply for a job. It's more exciting to have a job than to apply for a job. Do goals are more exciting than do not goals. The most important element in setting a goal that's not a chore is intrinsic goals, uh, is setting a goal that feels right to do and not only to achieve. Intrinsic motivation is the, the feeling that you have that what you do feels good at the moment, okay, or feels right at the moment, as opposed to first I will do it and then later I'll get some rewards. And our goals are often not 100% intrinsically motivated. We are going to work because we need to get our paycheck and not only because it feels right and good to do our job. But the extent to which 
doing something feels right as we do that, the extent to which we are intrinsically motivated, we will uh, stick to the goal. So this is the, you know, the number one predictor of adherence to just about uh, everything. And when it comes to setting goals, you argue that it's important to set abstract goals, but not too abstract. So the example you gave is it's better to focus on a goal of improving your mental health than simply saying be happy because it helps give you that that next action of what to do. Where do you draw the line between too abstract versus making sure that it still remains abstract? You can do an exercise with yourself. Just ask uh, some why questions. Like I want to go on a run this morning. Why? because I uh, want to uh, meet my uh, weekly goal of running a certain number of miles. Why? Okay, Because maybe I want to keep in shape. Uh, why? Because this is important for my mental health. Why? Well, because I want to be happy. Uh, but notice that when we got to be happy, then the connection to the action was not very clear. Like there are many ways in which I can be happy and running doesn't seem quite related to it. When I think about what will make me mentally healthy, and in this case, maybe physically healthy, then running might seem more related to it. And so I would say, ask these why questions until the how becomes too obscure, okay? Uh, Not very related to the goal. And then you, you went too far. You want to get to the abstract level, but the level that is still very clearly connected to action that you can very easily say, and this is how I maintain my mental health, okay, or this is uh, how I pursue business success, okay, or this is how I become a good leader. What about the role in which, you know, numerical targets, like quantifying our goals plays on motivation? So if somebody were to say, I want to save money versus saying I'd like to save $10,000. Numerical targets work. They work to the extent that they motivate people to meet that target. You want to get the specific uh, number. There was a paper published that looked at the distribution of marathon times in the U.S., and they had about 10 million uh, marathon runners. And what they found is that there are many more people that are finishing the marathon just below the target, okay, just at like, let's say, three hours and 59 minutes than just above the target, which would be four hours and one minute because many marathon runners want to finish a marathon under four hours. What's going on here? Well, once you set your target as four hours or three and a half hours or four and a half hours, this is highly motivating. You, you really want to meet this number. You are willing to uh, work hard so that you get to uh, that target. And so saving 10,000 or any other number that you came up with is better than just saying, I'm going to do my best. But there is one caveat that we often care about the number more than about the goal, and, and that can be dangerous. Companies sometimes uh, encourage uh, employees to engage in less ethical uh, activities so that they can meet their target. And so I say that it's important that the target has a number. Okay, It could be how much, it could be uh, by when. Okay, We need to finish it by the end of the month, Okay, by the end of the week. But you also need to realize that the only purpose for setting these targets was to motivate yourself. And if now the target motivates you in the wrong way, then step back, reevaluate the goal and maybe set a different target. There's the topic of incentives and having the rewards that can motivate you to stick to your goals. When does having the right incentive structure make sense and when does it not work? Incentives often work best when they are uncertain if you only reward the behavior on some occasions and not always, you know, if you work hard, you, you might get the bonus. You don't know whether you will get it and how much it's going to be that uh, keeps you uh, working hard. Uh, it's also exciting when uh, incentives are uncertain. And so there is uh, a lot of work on how to make the incentives sufficiently Uncertain, sufficiently unstable, so that people actually care about them, that they actually notice that there is a reward here that's different than the reward that I got before or what I anticipate to get in the future. And and then there are all kinds of tricks with uh, thinking about whether to incentivize the group or the individual and how to best structure that. We should also be aware that incentives can seriously backfire. (laughs) 
in my book, I, I tell the story of the Van Noy massacre of rats. And this is uh, when uh, French colonists uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century were trying to uh, get rid of the rats running the streets of Hanoi by um, having a bounty uh, program. So they paid one cent per uh, dead rat. The result was uh, uh, that the residents of Hanoi started breeding rats so that they can kill them and claim the money. So, you know, incentive system can be uh, tricky. Yeah, it's almost like when you're designing an incentive structure, you, you want to consider the potential shortcuts that could exist or how the system could be gamed, right? Absolutely. Okay, what is uh, uh, the easiest way to get the incentive here? This is probably going to be the way that... Uh, people and, you know, and animals <laughs> will act. When someone isn't sure that they're incentivizing the right behavior or the right outcomes, like what were some questions that you'd recommend that they ask themselves? We need to realize that the incentive is usually not the goal, okay? It's a mini goal. The real question is whether the incentive is leading to the behavior that we wanted to observe and the real goal that we wanted to achieve. Being incentivized to do that and the incentives are a signal that you're doing well. If you can get these incentives without doing well, okay, if you can steal the money instead of earning it, then the system is faulty. Yeah, because I was thinking about this. It really seems like when you've got the incentive right, there's a quality metric versus just a quantity one, which is based on time output, right? So meaning that, for example, let's say you're leading a sales team, a poor incentive could be incentivizing activity, for example, number of calls made, in which case someone could abuse that and say, well, I'll just pick up the phone and dial numbers and hang up versus incentivizing, let's say, the number of like outcomes based upon those calls. Yes. We really make uh, the distinction in motivation between uh, the motivation to do something and to do it right. And often these go hand in hand. Okay? Doing uh, uh, your job quickly uh, might not mean that you're doing it well. Okay? Like doing it well might actually take uh, uh, more time. And so we really want to understand how incentives affect how much people do how much output uh, there is and whether they've done a good job with it. This is a, a high quality. Unfortunately, with incentives, it's often easier to incentivize how much than uh, uh, how well. This is kind of you know, trivial once we say it, but uh, uh, often the, the trick with incentive systems is that you really want to incentivize a work well done. And you also mentioned that how important our goals are determines how likely we are to be motivated by progress or the lack of it. What do you mean by important? I mean that if you're committed to a goal, if it's something that you really care about, looking at what you are missing, looking ahead and say, I'm that far from where I want to be, that is going to be motivating. If you are not really sure that the goal is important, uh, then looking back is going to motivate you. So, you know, we ran a study with students who were either studying for a really important exam or an exam that wasn't really important. It was a pass-fail exam and students didn't really think that they should study much for it. The important exam when they were thinking about the materials that they have not yet covered, okay, what's still missing, that made them work hard. The unimportant exam where it wasn't clear whether I should really be studying in the first place, well, when they thought about what they've already done, okay, the materials that they've already covered, that increased their motivation. And so we, we really need to be thoughtful in how we, we monitor progress. We also found that how you monitor progress will influence your level of aspiration. That means that if you're looking at what's missing, you will already think about the next step, the next role. Okay, what else can I do? When I studied with an advertising company in Seoul, in South Korea, and we found that when we directed employees' attention to what they have not yet achieved, they were already planning about what they will do and how they will move to the next role at work. However, when we asked them to look back at what they've already achieved, they had lower level of aspiration, yet they were happier with their current role. They were more satisfied with the job that they have done and you know, what they were currently uh, doing. So how you monitor progress really matters. And speaking of that, so when we're doing well and succeeding, it seems like positive reinforcement helps us keep that momentum. But when we fail, things like our ego gets bruised and then we have this natural tendency to either tune out and or quit. I'm curious, how can we reframe negative feedback to use it as an effective means for making progress? 
Negative feedback is hard to learn from <laughs> because it hurts us emotionally and because it's just cognitively harder, okay? If you learn what's not, then by a process of elimination, you need to say, well, if that didn't work, then there is another way of, of doing that. That's not easy. There is a reason why if you ever train a pet, they say to only use positive reinforcement because now when you punish your dog, the dog understands that what they did is wrong. They just have no clue what is the right behavior. Okay, doing this cognitive switch from if this is not true, then there's something else uh, that is true. That's uh, not easy. So learning from failure is, is hard. It's not impossible. Okay, uh, one way you can improve your chances is by recalling uh, your commitment or your expertise. Giving advice to another person often forces people to think about what they have learned. Adopting a growth mindset, thinking uh, about how you grow from failures, keeping distance, okay, a third-party perspective. Uh, this is Ethan Cross's uh, work on, uh, on referring to yourself by your name. Okay, So asking myself, I yelled at what went wrong. I yelled at why did you mess it up? That helps keep a healthy distance and, uh, and allow you to learn from failure. But it's, it's, it's not easy. It's much easier to learn from successes. I want to give a huge thank you to Katie, Vanessa, Jay, and Ayelet for joining us on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com.